Ruchika, thank you so much for joining me on Spilling Chai. Um, I am so excited to have you, but what a lot of people don't know is that we go way back. We go, we go way, way back. back. And whenever I see your name, even now, I feel like it should pop up the former platform that we both uh, freelanced for. But I want to talk to you about, first of all, I'm so proud of you, not in a condescending way. I'm just so proud because I remember the CRAP we were dealing with. Oh, this is my show. I forgot the crap that you had to deal with, you know getting paid as a woman of color, getting paid for your writing as a woman of color. By the way, children, there was a period early on in, in the online media world when you were writing online and people thought that it should be free, that it was supposed to be free. So Ruchika and I go way back to our Forbes Women days. And I want to ask you, what is your, because I have seen it, I guess, online, but what has your journey been like since your days as a business journalist? Oh my God, I'm so glad that we get to have this conversation, Anishay. And like, I will say my big um, kind of realization and what I feel both excited about and what makes me a little disappointed is that that we haven't really fully reached a stage, even though we have all the availability to do it, to be able to publish more women of color and be able to establish ourselves fully as thought leaders in the way that I would like to see us do. So my journey really, I began as a business journalist. I trained as like someone who is good at telling other people's stories, right? And a lot of the the sort of landscape I came into as a business journalist was here's so-and-so white man, he's a CEO or he's in the C-suite or he's who everyone looks at to figure out like what's happening in the economy, in the markets, what, you know, what's, what are housing prices going to look like, which hedge funds should we be paying attention to? And so my job in many ways was to capture that slice of the world um, without really being, without kind of having the tools to investigate, like, why are we only talking about the economy from the perspective of what, you know, middle, uh, middle class to wealthy white men kind of see as the way that the economy is going? Why don't we talk about women's stories? Why don't we talk about women's leadership? So I kind of left journalism, I know, and, and this is this is where it's interesting when I we talk about it now, it's like, oh my gosh, of course, duh. Like, you know, especially when we think about like how much the digital landscape has changed. But I remember going to multiple different editors at multiple different publications I worked for saying things like, I think we should write about this or I think this story is worth covering. And I would hear time and time again, oh, I don't think our audience cares. I don't think our audience is going to want to read this story. I think you should just stick to your beat, right? And I'd be like, well, my beat is money or my beat is economics or my beat is leadership. And how come like, how come we cannot veer off a very narrow definition of all those things or those perspectives? So um, what I'm saying right now is what I love is that more voices like ours are being published and our stories, our perspectives is what are women of color dealing with in the workplace? What does leadership look like when you have been overlooked? How do you lead sort of with being told that you're not good enough and still motivate yourself and others and create opportunities and jobs and whatnot? Um, and I still think that there's a lot more to be done. Um, there is a lot more to be done. I keep nodding my head because yes, kids at home, you don't know. We have actually come really far. It was so bad. 
You know, it was really bad. And um, you're so right. It's like stick to your beat and being told that our stories didn't matter. Our voices didn't matter. And yes, this thing that no readers are not interested in that. And now we know who, you know, question who is the reader who's deciding who the audience is. So yes, brava. And oh my God, it was terrible. I'm having PTSD just thinking about it. Um, (laughs) I want to talk to you about, first of all, I love the title of your book. I love it. It's so active. And it's like the solution is in the title, you know, inclusion on purpose. I want to talk to you about performative inclusion because, um, you probably know a lot more about it. It's a term that I recently came across and I'm just like, wow, this is what white people love. (laughs) Talk to me about performative inclusion because I feel like after the George Floyd moment, there was a real reckoning in American society and culture. And now I feel like we are digressing. So what is performative inclusion? Because I feel like a lot of people do that. All right. You are probably catching me at a time where I have a lot of energy and maybe a little bit of maybe a lot of unprocessed rage on this issue. So do bear with me. But, um, you know, one thing I I think I'm coming off this deep frustration where week on week on week on week, I meet women of color and connect with women of color, whether it's women whom I personally know as friends. Right. I'm thinking of someone I had brunch with recently, whether it's people I don't know sending me, you know, messages online, whether it's me working with some of my consulting clients, whether it's me doing speaking engagements and week upon week, I meet incredible women of color who come to me and say, I was passed over for an exceptional job, for a top job, for a top leadership position that I am overqualified for, right? Like I have the degrees, I have been leading, I've been at this organization for a decade or two decades, sometimes three decades. Um, I have, I have everything that I need objectively, like on paper, I have more than I need to get this top job. And I was passed over most often for either a white man or a white woman. And it's so frustrating. And it's kind of like having this well of it almost feels like a well of pain. It's it's almost like collecting broken hearts. And really, that is why I wrote Inclusion on Purpose, because like it's it, it's so constant, it's hard to even quantify it. Like, I don't know now, has it been thousands of women of color I've spoken to? Has it been tens of thousands of women of, women of color I've spoken to? Um, I, like, it's so even hard to quantify. And then when we talk about performative inclusion or performative allyship, really on the flip side, again, give the work that I do gives me this unique vantage point where I'll go to talk to company uh, leaders, company like C-suite executives, where like we deeply believe in DEI, we really want to make a change, we really see why this work is so important. And then you literally speak to women of color who work there who are overlooked and underpaid and overworked and burnt out, passed over for those top jobs, expected to show up and perform to these really high levels and face bias and microaggressions. And this is not, I mean, I'm not saying something that now research hasn't backed up. And this is this is the other thing that's interesting about our work, right? The evolution, I think of the work you've done and written on and led on in for so many years 
and we didn't have the data. Yes, and now we have the data. Now we have the data. Yes. Now we have the data. Even know, for I, maternal health and what Black women have been saying for so long, that it's racism, not race. Anyhow, totally. that's driving these totally. disparities. But yes. Totally. So it's like we have the data and yet people don't want to make the change, right? And so performative inclusion is getting on your soapbox, like posting a black square on your social media or saying like, I really believe in all of these things, but you're literally, you're talking outside, you're talking out of the side of your mouth, but your actions don't reaffirm what you're saying. So it's it's like being essentially performative inclusion in many ways in my mind is much worse than actually saying like i i don't believe in this i don't want to do this because you're being a hypocrite you're saying one thing and you're doing another it's so dangerous it reminds me actually of martin luther king's quote about what is more dangerous than the outright racism paraphrasing here is the moderate white you know who doesn't want to ruffle any feathers doesn't really want but they're really holding everyone back it's really exploitation we have so many words now that we didn't before but i was in such a toxic environment for so long, a women's rights organization, mind you. And I am still processing the trauma, right? Now I look at stuff and I'm like, I would never let my that happen to my daughter. And But I also think my daughters would never, ever put up with it either. So we are moving forward in a way because we're speaking out. We're saying that's not okay. Or yes, I'm overqualified for this freaking, I'm overqualified for this job that I didn't get that I was passed over for. Um, So I grew up in Bangladesh and I spent quite a bit of time in Singapore, obviously not as much as you, but I think that it's a fascinating society to study. And I love what you have said in some of your interviews about the multiculturalism in Singapore and kind of the shock of the American workplace for you. Um, This is so interesting because you point out the statistic that 75% of Americans don't have a friend of color. And uh, I think it's something like over 40% of Americans who 46%, I'm going to say that don't have a Muslim friend. Mm -hmm. What, yeah. What is going on in American society that is being reflected in our workplaces that you have found? Yeah. So this is so great. And I could like talk about it all day long. So I always try and think of like ways I can get those sound bites in as we live in a TikTok and we do, but but I but I want you to really just just talk how you talk because this isn't like a TV hit. And also we're so honored guys watching at home. We are so lucky to have the mind and brain on this topic. So yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, here, so the statistic indeed is, you know, 75% of white Americans don't have a single friend of color and 91% of the average white American social network is white. And I think this is really, this, this was super shocking to me on a number of, for a number of reasons. I mean, at firstly, America is the most diverse country in the world. It really is, right? Like when you actually look at it. And what I what I find amazing and interesting is that there are opportunities to meet people from all over the world all the time, right? And I think of that all in in every sort of scenario I'm in. But the problem is is it takes intentional action again, back to inclusion on purpose, to disrupt the status quo. And the status quo has been through centuries and decades of segregation, redlining. I live here in the Seattle area. I live in a neighborhood that was literally redlined, literally 
African-Americans were only allowed to live in that neighborhood and could only be, you know, get mortgages that they could to live in the neighborhood that I currently live in, sadly, which has gentrified at one point, it was, you know, 80 to 90% black. And now it's less than 10% black. So really, really sad to see that happening too. Um, but my point is that I think the way that mo- many Americans have been sort of, you know, where you live, where you go to school, all of that plays into the part of the reality that for a lot of, especially white Americans, you never have a meaningful interaction with someone of a different race and culture, right? And that could mean you've never heard a you've never heard a name like Uchika. You've never heard someone speak a different language and really communicated with them in you know while they're navigating English and another language. And I think that is to me, it's a really sad experience. And to me, as I think of raising a six year old in this country. I really want to ensure that he has a different experience, right? Because what I had in Singapore was diversity, not necessarily inclusion, but you cannot live your life in Singapore having gone through, you know, school system, your neighborhood, et cetera, without meaningfully interacting with someone of a different race and culture. And indeed, when you think about, about having Muslim friends, I mean, I had not only did I have a number of Muslim friends growing up, but what was very important to me was understanding that there's something really magical in being able to partake in especially celebrations and cultures from a different culture without it feeling like you're doing something wrong or turning against your own religion or culture. And that's something that I find really interesting here in the United States, which I can get into a little bit of, you know, like a bit of hot water for saying this. But what I've noticed is, you know, if I say to someone, if I say, oh, Merry Christmas, they'll immediately be like, oh, no, no, happy holidays. And I'm like, okay, but it's okay for me to wish you a Merry Christmas. And it's great if you say to me, oh, Merry Christmas to you and, you know, happy Hanukkah as well. And and I think what we have had in this culture in many ways is to really sanitize and strip away that curiosity for fear of whether it's offending someone, whether it's, again, not having meaningful interactions with someone different than you. In Singapore, it was normal for someone to say to me, you know, Eid Mubarak. And I would say Eid Mubarak back. It doesn't matter whether I'm Muslim or not, whether I you know, whether Eid is quote unquote my celebration or not, it is my celebration. You know what I mean? And I think that is uh, something that more of us can learn in this country and we can bring about the type of change that we aspire to. I think we have all the tools or we have all the conditions to create a very diverse society. We have it. What we need to focus on is that inclusion and harnessing those, you know, having a very diverse sort of set of friends, social circle. Um, and then and then before I really go off on a huge tangent, the biggest area where we do have an opportunity to create change is the workplace. Because for most Americans, the first time you're actually going to interact with someone, research shows, the first time you're actually going to have meaningful interactions with someone of a different race or ethnicity than you is the workplace. Yes, yes. And you know what? It makes such a big difference. I mean, during, during the Trump years when everything with the Muslim ban was going on one of my friends said that her kid came home and was talking about it and then said but we don't know any Muslims you know we don't have any Muslim friends and they were like yes we do and and they pointed to you know Miss Anushe and you know Ava's mom and Ava's a Muslim and and it made such a light bulb go up for this white blonde kid and he became really kind of you know kind of protective and defensive so you're so right these relationships start they start with friendships really at at any age 
I love this quote of yours that you said, I previously held about meritocracy that you get as far as how hard you work. And I realized Mm -hmm. inclusive workplaces don't happen by chance. It takes intention and constant action driven by leaders. I love that. That is so true and so smart. I love how you articulate that point. Do you think today's leaders have what it takes? Because sometimes I'm like, they don't want it to get so diverse. There's a lot of jealousy, I feel like sometimes too, you know, like, I mean, yes, in the workplace, it's just a really weird kind of competition, racist competition almost, where they feel entitled or just assume that they should be better or entitled to certain certain um, positions and opportunities. So what do you think about that? Because sometimes I'm like, this guy is so racist. Why are white guys want to get want to give up their privilege and power? It is great to be a white man in America. I don't want to be one, but it's pretty great. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Really. Except it's not really. I mean, the so a couple of things, right? I absolutely subscribe to the ideas of meritocracy growing up in Singapore, again, a country that really markets itself their words, not mine, but going from a third world to a first world in a couple of generations. So there's this real idea of like, it doesn't matter what your past is, you know, for Singapore, it's like, it didn't matter that we were colonized. It didn't matter that we were part of a country and had this very painful break away from Malaysia. What matters is what we did with all the decades and all the sort of, you know, hard work that came in. So I really subscribe to those ideals, like many Americans do and did. And of course, came to realize very quickly, especially as I became an adult and a woman of color in a, you know, in many different societies in the world, I realized actually, nope, it does matter, right? Meritocracy is a myth. It does matter what you look like. It does matter what your identities are and what others perceive of you. So there's that. I think the other thing about specifically around the idea that like, it's great to be a white man in America. I mean, my good friend, Ejioma Ulo has written a fabulous book called Mediocre about how this idea of, you know, this, of like being a white man and whiteness is going to protect you and save you and be able to elevate you out of whatever situation you're in is actually a myth and it's harming as many, not in the same ways, perhaps, and this is where I, I remember, you know, I recently heard, um, watched a video of, uh, of Dr. Ibram Kendi say this as well. Literally, it may not, racism and white supremacy may not harm white people in quite the same way that it harms people of color and black people, but it does harm white people, right? And we are, we're seeing, we're seeing the type of social or the lack of social mobility in this country, even among white people that we've just never seen in decades and centuries past, right? So what we find is, and and again, policing and police brutality, it actually impacts white people as well, right? And creating these systems in the workplace with a lack of diversity, it does impact innovation. It does impact opportunity. The type of toxic workplaces we're seeing today, and especially the lack of union of being able to unionize, the lack of being able to protect workers, the lack of access to healthcare, it very much impacts everyone. And I think that very much part of the myth of meritocracy, which by the way, already was created as a satire, right? A meritocratic society was created as a satire by a British writer, not, not as fact. And suddenly it became this idea of like, oh yeah, meritocracy is real. No, it's not. So there's that. But I think more than anything, to co-opt that idea of meritocracy, 
Um, we've told white people that like, if you give up your whiteness or if you fight for equality and equity, you're losing out as well. And the reality is it's actually the opposite. And again, we have the data to prove that, especially in workplaces. Well, you make such an important point. And also you make a point about toxic masculinity. I had authors, Syra Round, Regina Jackson of uh, White Women. <laughs> they're awesome. They're great. Yes. Um, awesome. On, and she said that as well, that white women think, you know, that whiteness is going to protect them. But and they're constantly because we were talking about the statistic of white women always voting, you know, with their gender, with their race, not their gender. Oh, always. College educated women, uh, women voting for Trump. Anyhow, um, so th- that point is so important, and I'm so glad you made it. Whiteness hurts. White supremacy hurts. White people do. Hurts white women too. So that is very, very, very important. Um, okay, I love this uh, other quote that you said. So in an interview, somebody asked you what the best piece of advice um, you ever received, and you said, oh my God, "What did I say? It's oh, so great." I don't even know. It's so great. I actually can't wait to share this with my girls. Um, anyway, so he asked you, what, okay, so you said so much, but most recently, one of the biggest muscles women of color have to train is our sense of significance. I love this. We have to build that muscle to the point where it is seen and felt by others, or it is so strong in ourselves that we don't give a damn about those who don't. I wish somebody you know had told that? me this. Yes. Oh, I, I'll send you the link. Yes. It was this interview with, well, the interview guy's name was Adam and he asked you, I'll send you the link because I, well, oh God, I hope he didn't misquote you. <laughs> it's such a great quote. It's, I mean, it's a fabulous quote and there's a part of me that's like, did I really say that? Well, you were, you were I, saying, I, you were saying that he asked you what is the single best piece of advice you got. So this yeah, is something somebody yeah, told yeah. you. Because like, yes. I don't remember it's, this. It's, it's, <laughs> no, no. You know, you know why I love this advice? Because it's something that I, I feel like I need to reiterate in myself often. Me too. Because I, because I lose it, yeah. right? I lose it. I lose after years of being conditioned to be, you know, less than and a good Indian girl. And, oh, this is what it means to be, you know, uh, a, a, really a good, a good, Indian, I mean, truly a good, cool, Indian a good girl. Indian girl, a, go, a, good a good brown Indian girl, South Asian girl, a good brown girl. Um, it shows up in such, okay, can I give you the weirdest example of how this shows up to me? And yes. then we can talk about the sense of significance. Um, so a couple of Days ago, my son, you know, for as American as he is, one of his favorite things to eat is this, um, it's called poha, and it's basically flattened rice. You put potatoes and onions, and it's delicious, and it's a lovely breakfast. So I made some, you know, many days, like over the weekend, and I was coming into my office, and I work out of a shared office space. And, and there's le- there was leftovers in the fridge, and I was like, okay, today's the last day, gotta finish this. So I was gonna I was gonna just bring it in the box that I made it in and bring it to my office. And there's a microwave, and I was gonna heat it up. And then um, as I was about to leave, I was like, you know what? Like sometimes the onions and um, the food in it, like it could it could stink up the microwave. Like then it, you know, then what if like people look at me and they're like, oh my God, like what did this brown girl bring in her lunchbox? A smelly brown and person. It, it and suddenly I was transported back 
30 years ago, wow. right? To when I was six and seven and eight and nine and bringing, you know, food that my mom lovingly packed chutney sandwiches and yeah. stuff and remembering feeling that shame and that like- Because kids are so freaking mean. Kids are so freaking mean. But so are adults. Yeah. Like I remember then I remember once in a while, like I have had people say to me like, oh my God, like your food must be so exotic. And like, do you guys have chana masala all day? And it's, and it feels very, it's, and you yeah. know, so that shame of like, even when it moves from like, oh, disgusting to like that level of like exoticization, there's this yeah. feeling of, there's this icky feeling you can't yeah. Anyway, so my point is that sense of significance. And then, and then, so of course, that's what I, I heated it up at home. I brought it in my little warm thermos pack so that I could eat it warm at in my yeah. office without creating an offensive smell anywhere. And I think my point is I have to remind my own self of my own sense of significance because it often even in my, those micro moments, there are times where I go back and I'm like, like, do I want to do this? Do I not? You know, okay, um, I'm sorry. I just, no, I don't apologize. Out. Don't apologize. I actually want to say two really important things. I am so glad you brought that up because one of my biggest complexes to this day that I really even haven't worked on is being the smelly brown person. Like I just refused mm-hmm. it for a really long time. Me I didn't too. even cook uh, desi food in my home. Yeah. And recently totally. I have started to, but I always tell my girls because I'm complex about it and they know it. And now my older daughter is like, I don't want to be the smelly desi girl. Um, even though she's half Iranian, <laughs> they have some smelly food too. <laughs> but you know what I told her back home? They in have Bangladesh, delicious food. Delicious by the way, food. I love, yes. I love her. And I love I love Bengali bangla food and I absolutely love Iranian food as well. well. So sorry. Thank you. Some of the best food. food all day. So I feel like some of the best things about the multiculturalism in Singapore is the freaking food you get in Singapore yes. is amazing. Best Chinese, yes. bed in, yes. best Indian, oh. Malay. Um, best Indian, no, yeah. but you know what I told her is that back home in Bangladesh, like the kitchen is not such a central part. You know, like we cook, the, the kitchen is kind of kept far away from the house. That's right. You know, the main right. kitchen. We don't, like in America, That's you right. cook it in your home. It's going to smell up with the central air, the carpet. It's also yes. a little different. The other thing I wanted to tell you, uh, say, make a point about is that the food racism is kind of new, relatively new and unraveling itself. I have a very good Pakistani friend who's a, who's a big, um, I guess she's a chef. Anyhow, she's an online uh, food blogger. And she was saying that growing up, yeah, it's so awesome. Growing up, all these white people made so much fun of her food. Like you have poop in your mom made you poop sandwiches because of the green That's chutney. Right. And right. now everyone's like, oh, yeah. can you yeah. how to make tajik or karai yes. chicken? And she's like, Really, yes. you love my food now? Yes. And I love, she was on the show and I love that she said yeah. that spice. Food. <laughs> I know. It's, it's like, oh, now you want me to teach you how it's to make so the true. palak paneer? What the heck? So white people have, high five white people. They have yeah. Yeah. become nicer and progressed as Chris Rock says. <laughs> <laughs> they have, there's a reason you have that complex. I don't, you know. Not complex, but that thing, that, that worry. I don't know. It just, again, like we, it's, it's, it's yeah, and you know, thinking about cultural, like I've I've been asked about cultural appropriation versus appreciation. There was this big new controversy. Gwen Stefani talked about how she is Japanese, and then she kind of so bad. went. She's and then she went and like doubled up. Like nope, I'm yeah. Japanese. I knew I was Japanese. Like instead of being <laughs> like, 
It, I mean, it could have gone so many other ways. Can I just say how much I love Japanese culture and be, you know, being lucky enough to grow up in Singapore, going to Japan regularly and really in many ways immersing myself um, in so many different ways and absolutely understanding like there is a difference between saying like, I love this culture and so much of it speaks to me and I am, you know, someone who really appreciates it. Of course, someone who's like, I'm going to take all the best parts of it without understanding the, and and without, without ever experiencing all the trauma and pain and challenge that comes with being non-white in this country and other countries. And I think, especially hearing Stefani say that, in the context of this rising violence, you know, really painful violence against Asian Americans and Asian elders. It just like that level of insensitivity reminds me a little bit of this. Like I know we can, you know, I know like when someone comes to me and they're like, oh, could you teach me how to make palak paneer or chana masala or you're so lucky you have chicken tikka at home. Yes, I get it. Like, yes, thank you for being a little nicer than yes, those days where we got laughed at or like, you know, kids said mean things. But I still think often it comes from a space of like still not fully understanding both the trauma like in the past, but also this the trauma that still exists today, right? And again, it's like if I, with my Americanized accent, right, and my two college degrees, I'm like, oh, I had chicken tikka. People are like, oh, so cool. But if my accent was different or I didn't speak English, Right. It would immediately be like, oh, like, you know, she hasn't really she hasn't really, um, you know, she doesn't understand American culture like she's different. So I think the point here is that there's a lot more nuance to even that change of like going from like, oh, your food is disgusting to like, oh, my God, your food is so exotic. Right. Okay, I'll stop now. No, no, no. Sorry. (laughs) I was just going to say that to you. I'm like, oh my God, I can talk to you all day. No, yes, you're so right. I just realized after three years of Zoom, I'm still not unmuting myself. Um, No, you are so right. And you know, there was this scene in uh, Never Have I Ever, you know, Mindy Kaling's show on Netflix, where the mom is kind of having a flashback for her husband who died. and, And she was saying that all the white ladies at the school lunch or potluck or whatever, PTA, whatever, like were grossed out that she brought like an Indian dish and did it was just so sad. I'm like, gosh, but you're right. It's it, there's always a uh, nuance and there's always, we can't generalize our experiences too. So I could talk to you forever. And this conversation is like an education. Um, but my last question to you is um, I'm so proud of you for this book, not in a condescending way at all. I really am. I just feel like, look at this. I mean, I'm so proud of you. And you have really, um, it's one thing to write a book and, and, and another thing to really contribute. So um, your book sold over 15,000 copies within its first six months of publication. What does that say to you? And what gives you hope um, doing the work that you do? Well, thank you so much, Anishay. And I think I see us doing this together in solidarity. In fact, the more I think about creating workplaces, you know, where hopefully we can be more inclusive and really bring in and support and empower women's leadership, right? In the in the sense, recognize women of color's leadership in a way that it isn't. I think it really comes down to recognizing how much women of color contribute to our society and what 
level of challenges and pain we face. And I think your work, especially around maternal health, maternal mortality, you know, in general, health plays a big part. And I'm so glad that in our society, we're finally talking much more about that connection between health and the workplace, whether it's burnout, whether it's parental and family leave, whether it's literally caregiver leave, health. I mean, we're finally having those conversations by no means to the level that we should. And how many decades and centuries are we behind, but I'm really glad we're doing this together. In terms of my book, I will say for a book that got 30 rejections and, and feedback, like, um, we don't know if like the focus on women of color needs to be said, or we don't think diversity books do well. I think that there's this idea that like, a, that there's obviously an artificial competition that gets created. And what I really want to talk about is how I'm so proud of, of course, how my book did. But what I really hope is it's proof for other women of color who go out there and shop their books and think like, should I write that essay or not? Should I even do that like LinkedIn post about this experience I've had? Should I maybe do an Instagram reel or TikTok or whatever the cooler kids are doing these days? I hope that everyone who has something to say, who has been told your voice doesn't matter, recognizes that no, your voice does matter. There is proof that our stories need to be told, they need to be heard, they need to be understood, our wisdom needs to be appreciated and learned from. And that's what the sales and the other numbers tell me, right? It's less about me, but it's more about creating this like community and really this ability for everyone to be able to tell their stories. And if my work is show is seen as like proof for a publisher to be like, oh, okay, woman of colors book sold, you know, 15,000 or 20,000 copies, like, sure. Okay. Let's go ahead and take a chance on this other woman. Of yeah. Um, <laughs> and so then so be it, you know, then so be it. Exactly. Well, now you Rolling kind of, but yes, yeah, but I love that. That's what it is. We're such assets. Remember that view yourself as that and remind other people of that and, and remind each other of that. I recently had had a moment where um, somebody asked me to do the speaking gig and because I knew her, I gave her a really low number and she came back to me and she was a white woman and she said, no, you asked for this. Everybody else asked right. for that. You're so right, but you're, it's because we know each other. And she was like, no, you can't. And Absolutely I was just like, not. I, even I'm still doing that. So yes, remember your worth and tell your story. Because if you don't, uh, somebody else will tell it for you. And we don't want to do that anymore. Take control of your narrative. No. So Rinchika, no. thank you so much. And I really want to meet you in person. I really, yes. I feel like we are star-crossed. Soul I know we will. And we will. I feel like this is the year, you know, we we're emerging from this really oh, terrible, yes. painful time, but I feel like this is the year and I'm going to try and do my thing to try and connect with as many of us badass women of color around this country and really around the world. Like it is our time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've taken up so much more of your time than I promised I would, but I could talk I to you talk forever. So much. <laughs> Tell me about. I don't, I don't even notice. I don't especially about me. <laughs> I don't even know what it means especially when people say that. <laughs> I love it. Our next book, Inclusion matter. on Purpose in the Kitchen. Something like in that. the kitchen. Or, yeah, yeah. In the yeah. cafeteria. I mean, listen, listen. I think that the way to 
connect most deeply with people is over food. I mean, there's a reason why so many of even like religious texts and all are about breaking bread. It's really about, for me, it's, I mean, I'm a rice person. I'm not a bread person. So for me, it's about like digging into that same which, you know, in, in so many, especially Muslim cultures. Yeah, eating with your hand, you, eating together. You eat with your hand, eating together. together. So, eat on the floor. Anyway, on yes. the floor together with your hands. So, well, let right, me tell friend. you, I will Thanks. tell you really quickly, though, about rice and loving rice. I mean, one of the biggest showdowns for my wedding, marrying an Iranian was over the rice because they wanted their four rice dishes. They wanted their four rice dishes. And (laughs) it got to a point where they were like, well, if you have yours, it's too many. And I'm like, I'm not getting married with that biryani. I won't get married. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, that's too many rice dishes. And then my husband was like, okay, Can okay. Can you get married again? Can you get I married will. again and invite your friend Ruchika who will come in from Seattle to wherever be, because you know? there is no such thing as too much rice in my world. <laughs> I love rice. I love rice. And it pains me so much to waste any rice. Um, yes. Okay. Dear friend. Thank you so much. Next time it will be spilling rice with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chica. I will speak to you soon. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Have a good one. Bye, Chica. Really. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye.